Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. So here we are with the Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis on media issues of recent days, and we thank you for joining us. My name is Rex Smith from the Upstate American. For 30 years, I was the editor of a newspaper. Judy Patrick is here, formerly editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady. Ira Fussfeld, publisher emeritus of the Kingston newspapers, the Daily Freeman and its affiliated publications, and Dr. Alan Shartok, the one and only CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Sir, how are you? Pleased to be here. Pleased to be on this side of the grass. This side of the grass. <laughs> There's a morbid start. Here we go. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, one foot in myself. So, Alan, let me start with you, actually. Uh, you always start with me, and I well, find it very uncomfortable. Well, well, then fine. You can just sit there and be quiet. I thought it was part of the house contract on this show that you have to ask Alan the first question. Well, there is a certain reasonable to do. Okay, shoot. Okay, Fox News. Go, Alan. Bad, bad, very bad. <laughs> so what do we infer? from the fact that Fox News hosts were interacting with the president on January 6th, reaching out to the president's chief of staff, desperately trying to get to him to tell him, hey, this is hurting everything we're doing. Tell the people to back off. What do we make of that? Well, we don't really know what was being said, you know, by Trump. That's the problem. We know what the hosts say they were saying, but we don't really know what Trump was saying. I suspect I know what he was saying. The initials would be F.E., E is M in a colloquial. Judy's looking very oh, I, pleasant. Oh, I got I it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you needed the, the little accent. Uh, yeah, uh, accent to Google. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so we pretty well know that the president was sitting there looking at the television saying, good, good, enjoying himself. Meanwhile, everybody from his kids on are all saying, cut it out, don't do that, that's bad. And Fox is also saying, don't do that, because they think that whatever reputation they have with the middle, that they're going to lose it as a result of this. But it turns out, of course, that if this ex-president does whatever he's doing, you know, 90% of the Republican Party is going along with him. Let me play devil's advocate. Oh, no. Yes, and, I, and I'm not by any means a defender of Fox News, nor am I a defender of Chris Cuomo, who I'm going to mention. There's a famous scene in the movie Broadcast News where the female producer chastises the male reporter by saying, you've crossed the line. And he says, one of the problems is the line is, keeps moving. Mm -hmm. Is there more room for maneuvering for opinion people like Hannity and Laura Ingram or Chris Cuomo or Al Sharpton, who is on a, a regular and has his own program on MSNBC and is an activist and offers advice and then some? I could go on and on. Who was JFK's best friend in the middle of his residency, none other than Ben Bradley. Uh, our, the Washington our, Post for all uh, you right. young people. Are newspaper columnists not whispering in the ear of people who they cover or, or opine about? Where is the conflict or is there an excuse for Ingram and Hannity that maybe they don't deserve? 
Now, I think the issue here is the hypocrisy and what you're going to find in days to come. There were probably other reporters who reached out to Meadows and said, hey, there's something really bad going down here. You need to do something. I think a lot of reporters probably did reach out to him. The issue is the hypocrisy of the Fox News opinion people, or whatever we call them, going on the air and saying, well, you know, this is probably Antifa, or maybe some FBI people have planted the information in there. I listened to Howard Kurtz, who's the media columnist for Fox News. I was interested to see how he would defend this. And his defense was, well, at least they reached out as good citizens and did whatever they could to stop it. But he couldn't go any further because there's no farther to go with that because they were hypocrites and they continue to be hypocrites. Whatever happened to the Howard Kurtz who was on uh, CNN and before that at the Washington Post? Right, he Post. got bought off. <laughs> you know, but to Iris' point, uh, if they are commentators as opposed to news people, I think you made a distinction you probably didn't intend to make there, Judy, when you said there are probably other reporters who are reaching out saying, hey, why doesn't he do this? I think other reporters might have been calling the White House to say, may I speak to so-and-so, let me talk to, but they're interviewing. These people are offering their political advice. And is that different? If you're a commentator, I, I think the, the hypocrisy is the good question. These people who now say, as Tucker Carlson does, aired actually a fake piece that lays the blame for the January 6th attack at the feet of Antifa, when in fact on that day, on January 6th, they knew that it was the president who was at the root of this, and they were trying to get him to call it off. But maybe there is a different set of rules for those people. Alan, you're not a reporter. You're not out there every day reporting. You have a little bit of a different role as a commentator mm. on the news. There is actually greater flexibility, don't you think, in well, the role that you can play? Well, first of all, I didn't call the White House that day. <laughs> Let's um, make that and, clear. And secondly, and I've been talking to classes and others about this, for years, you got to sort of put yourself in the moment. Uh, Judy, let's just take Judy. Judy's walking down the street, and she's a reporter, and she sees a despicable thing happening. As a citizen, does she take a roll and kick the guy in the groin and say, this is not right? And will she go back and be told by her editor, although she was the editor, told by her editor, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have gotten into the news yourself. That kind of question has come up perpetually for years and years. I think reporters are citizens first. We're people first. If you have a chance to save someone's life, you save the life. The story can come after. But there are all sorts of nuances there, in indeed. So if you're a reporter or a radio commentator or a TV commentator and you, you offer your opinion every night of the week and you may have met or likely have met some of the people who you're talking about in social settings, maybe even developed a friendship with them, although I suggest against it, if that political person calls you you up, you the commentator, and says, I'm thinking of voting against the filibuster. What do you think? Should the person on the other end of the phone answer the question in a way other than if you want to know what I think, listen to me on the radio or, or uh, read the column? Or do you say, you know, I think you guys are making a mistake if you do A versus B. Don't you think that happens all the time? Uh, or at least frequently enough that it's going on under uh, the radar? Well, let's put it this way. I'm sorry, Rex. Let me put it this way. A major person in politics called me recently to tell me that he or she was thinking about running for governor. And what did I think? Right. And that's a tough one. I happen to really admire this person. And I gave him some yada, 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 you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, feedback. 
But clearly, if he's calling me or she's calling me, you better believe that everybody else is getting that phone call also. Actually, which state, Alan? I'm interested in uh, <laughs> Utah. <laughs> this is just interesting. Now I want to interview Shartok. All right. But I think it depends on the individual and on kind of how you posture, how you position your commentary. I don't think that, that happens. If you're a columnist for the New York Times, I don't think that Barack Obama was calling up Maureen Dowd, for example, to ask her opinion on things. But it may well happen for an independent columnist, for somebody who is not governed by those sort of ethical strictures that the Times does have. You know, the other thing is that Trump is apparently on this day was notoriously difficult to get a hold of. And they were just trying to they were reaching out to Meadows in hopes that Meadows would forward the message to them. If they really wanted to get the information to Trump, they should have tweeted it. But then the whole world would have known, wouldn't they? Uh-huh. And they didn't want that. You're right. So now we come to this question about Fox, because Fox has had some very difficult days, you know, about the same time that this emerged, that Fox hosts had been really taking it to the president on January the 6th, whom they now defend and claim that he didn't have much to do with it, that it was all a misunderstanding, and perhaps it was Antifa. At the same time, two of Fox's conservative opinion commentators quit, resigned mm-hmm. in protest over this supposed quote-unquote documentary that Tucker Carlson aired, blaming January 6th on Antifa. And then suddenly, without announcement, without even his staff knowing it, Chris Wallace, the face of respectability at Fox News, to the extent there is such a thing, quit and abruptly took a job with a streaming service for CNN. What does this tell you about what's going on at Fox? Is the point at which you wake up in the morning and you say, I just can't do this. I just can't do this anymore. This is outside anything I had ever anticipated happening. The government of the United States was being threatened. Our whole democracy was being threatened. And I've always argued that it's best to have me here so that I can give the other side. But this is just too much. Hmm. I have taken to telling students, I was on a panel with Columbia Journalism students the other day, and I told them, you cannot leave this class and go to work for Fox News. Uh, I don't care how hard up you are. You can't put peanut butter on your table. You don't work for Fox News if you're a reputable journalist. Did anybody give you anything back as a result of your utterance? Uh, you mean was I paid? No. No, no, no. no, no <laughs> oh, no, did they push back? Did somebody push back? Uh, easy for you to say. No, that's a good point. You know, I'm not hungry. But I just hope that the students understand that however you may be engaged with Fox News, if you think you're a genuine journalist, you're working for a disreputable organization. But on the other hand, the Rex, think about it this way. There's somebody sitting there listening who is a huge supporter of Donald Trump and is a huge supporter of the Republican Party and anything that they're doing. And he hears you say, you cannot go to work for Fox. What is his reaction or her reaction to that? Well, yeah, they hate me, but I'm just talking about journalistic ethics, and Fox is lacking them. I mean, their charter has them distorting the news. They intentionally present news from a biased viewpoint. Actually, the the former prime minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, referred to Rupert Murdoch and his right-wing news organizations as the greatest cancer on the Australian democracy, and maybe that's true. Remembering, of course, that that's where it all began for him. There may be a few people listening. Yeah, Murdoch owns three-quarters of the newspapers in in Australia, yeah. and so it is really the and a dozen or so kangaroos. Do you do you any of you know of an equivalent to Fox or something close to Fox prior to the current media landscape? In other words, fifty years ago, was there a Fox in print? 
That's an interesting question, all right. Yes, so William Randolph Hearst. Early in the 20th century, yeah, Hearst owned more than 200 newspapers across the country and had a bias, a prejudice, but it's a different environment in those days. First, there were so many thousands of newspapers, but he was very powerful. Well, that was the point I was going to make. There's a large media landscape now, but I think it was even greater and more influential then. I I just look at Fox, and it concerns me what they're putting out on the air, but it, it concerns me more that people who watch Fox are likely not to be watching any anything else. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting a steady diet of it and literally have no idea about what the other side is. Well, let's be fair about this. There are always a few of us who say, I listen to Fox regularly because I want to understand what the other side is thinking. But if you look at their numbers, they're unbelievable. A lot of people believe in Fox and believe in the message that they're getting. And that tells you more about the danger to the American democracy than anything oh, else. I agree with that. But I would raise the point again that the CBS Nightly News will draw five million people, while Tucker Carlson will only get three right. million. And when I'm on Facebook or social media and I'm seeing the crazy right-wing fanatic postings, the memes, the anti-vax stuff, a lot of it isn't coming from Fox now. It's coming from Newsmax or 4chan. Those people are finding new channels of information. And, and Fox seems to be some of the more moderate stuff you see out there. But you can't really fight a Newsmax article because they're so extreme that you can't even argue the point. But here's what's coming next. I mean, apropos the move of Chris Wallace to CNN, primarily he's moving to the streaming service. He's not going to be on the air I was wondering about that. Good, yeah. good call, Rex. Go yeah. Ahead. He's going to CNN streaming, and this is telling us something about the direction that's going, that terrestrial radio and broadcast television and cable television all are going to be diminishing as the years come along, apparently, and people are increasingly turning to streaming. Rather than appointments, people tuning in to hear the Media Project at 6 o'clock Sunday and 3 o'clock Monday. Thank you very much, folks. <laughs> or anytime, right here at Anytime at WMC.org, right. And that's increasingly, I think, what people are going to be doing. Well, right? that's a fascinating point because you think about it for a second and we're talking about age differential. I mean, old people, sort of like myself, are much less likely to understand what streaming is, how to go there, how to access it, and younger people will. Now, whether younger people are doing anything Ira, to hear the news, I don't know. But clearly, the streaming will be more uh, likely to affect younger people. Right. For all of the discussion that we've had and they've had elsewhere about the death of print newspapers, right behind could be the traditional broadcast news outlets, radio stations, because, as you point out, older people are dying out and the younger people are more inclined for streaming. But the younger people come to visit the older people, and then they install the, the streaming apps onto their <laughs> smart TV, and then we're ready to go. The only issue is how many streaming apps can I fit on my uh, TV screen? The market's getting crowded when it comes to streaming services. NBC has the Peacock Network, CNN. I love streaming services. You, you control when and where you watch. Mm -hmm. And I would just wonder how long it will be. What will follow podcasts, for example? Right now, the rise of podcasts is just remarkable. Five years ago, it was something of a new thing. A podcast was, what is that after all? And, yeah. and now, we can be reached by podcasts at WAMC.org, and we can get the podcast to the Media Project. Right yes, there. we were just noting, yes, absolutely. We weren't kidding, folks, when we were talking about And where uh, do people find the time to listen to all of these podcasts? I have no idea. As you're driving. I mean, I listen to one podcast. He's on three days a week. I'll put aside the hour to listen, but I can't listen to more than an hour. Well, what is the one that you listen to? Uh, we're, all, we're all interested. Uh, 
Uh, you really want to know? Yeah. I listen to the Tony Kornheiser program. He's a veteran print journalist, and he does ESPN and has a terrific podcast. He's more or less my age, and he talks about his life experience. And as David Letterman used to joke, it's like I have a twin. You know, he. So I, <laughs> but the point is, I, he's only on three days a week. It's about an hour, and I have time. I'm retired, but I can't listen to five podcasts a day. I don't know who's listening to all this stuff. Well, people put on headsets in the gym or as they're running or walking. Jim, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Judy, do you? Uh, right, right. I, I listen to multiple podcasts, and I do it when I garden, when I walk, when I run. But one of the problems, I think, especially for radio stations like WAMC, is that This American Life is a podcast. So instead of listening to it on WAMC, I listen to it via a podcast. Uh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you I'm should sorry. be. Sorry. <laughs> What can you do? Oh, well. Just warning you. Just warning you. I know my son in L.A. is in traffic all the time, so he's got time to listen in the car. But Mm -hmm. the average person, I just don't. It must be working because they keep growing and making money. It's a generational thing. You know, Judy's the youngest person in the room here. Well, uh, not next to our producer, David Costina. So that's it. You know, that extra couple of years there, she's listening to podcasts more than you are, Iris. Well, I guess. (laughs) And I developed a habit of listening to audible books. Yeah, that's another one. What's going to run out fast is how much money you're spending on gas being in the car listening to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I am just so fascinated by how well this radio station, WAMC, with 29 outlets now, is doing compared to the old giants. Now, two of the old giants are still there, the country music giant. In this market, you mean? Yes, but we're doing extremely well. So, you know what? There's always an audience for a particular favorite. We all know this because we've all run institutions, right? Judy and Rex and Ira, you hire somebody. What's the first thing you think of when you're hiring somebody? Will I be able to fire this person if I need to? Lord. I'm not sure that's the first This is very revelatory. Poor WAMC staff. On the contrary, they've been here for a million years because I follow that rule. But but you look very closely, I'm sure, at your ratings and vis-a-vis your demographics. And, yes. and there's no secret, because it's true with virtually all broadcasts, the audience for this program and like skews older. So you've got to be sitting there thinking, okay, we're doing very well among this crowd, but are we going to get the young people when they turn to that age, or are they going to go somewhere else? And that's the problem that print, I mean, God, the 18 to 34s, there was a period in my career where we were all saying, how many 18 to 34s are you getting? How many 18 to 34s is public radio getting? Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting. Our last numbers I looked at were actually going down in age. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's only sick. because you're losing the top end there. Oh, that's, well, that's Sorry. interesting. <laughs> you watch that, Rex. <laughs> As I said, one foot in myself there, folks. But we know, generally speaking, that public radio, let's pull out WAMC, public radio skews towards an older audience and a more liberal audience. That's Mm -hmm. historically the case. So the question is, will that be sustained long term? I mean, it's been said that people, maybe you've said it, people don't don't get interested in politics until they have to pay their school tax. Until they have to pay, or their mortgage. Or their mortgage. So You know what else skews for old people is Facebook. Three percent of their uh, active users are people of young age so mm-hmm. right? uh, they've got a serious problem too but as we in the print business have, have mentioned for years and years the people who actually have money to buy stuff are people our age right 
Right, which is why it is sustained still. You know, one of the things that is interesting about public broadcasting, pointed out actually by a, an article that our producer David Gustina put in our hands, is the uh, concern about Latino listeners. An article written by a professor named Christopher Chavez, who's a professor at the University of Oregon, noting that the charter for public broadcasting did not refer to audience growth. In fact, it was just the opposite of that. It said NPR would not regard its audience as a market as part of the mission statement that was initially at the top of NPR, which means that it ought to be paying more attention in the case of this article, he's saying, to its Latino listeners. And maybe that is the case. Maybe public broadcasting has never been as concerned about building mass audience as it is serving the audience as a taxpayer-supported entity. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Rex, because when you listen to NPR now, it is so clear that they are very diligent about trying to find people who are representative of each of those audiences like the Latino audience. There's a guy who's on almost every morning now, who didn't used to be there, but his name is A. Martinez. M.A. Mm-hmm. Is his name M.A. Martinez? M.A. Well, it's the initial M, as you would say, M.A. It's how you say that in... Really? Uh, yes, M. I Martinez. Say, all I hear is A. Ah, is, and I like that. There's a first <laughs> um, But it is so clear that you may be right that they don't feel they have to do all the news that is related to that group, but they certainly are going to honor it in every way they can in order to get more listeners. Or in order to, instead of not just get more listeners, but to be of service to that part of the community. That's what journalism is both, for most of us, we consider it a mission, that we're driven to be of service to the community and not just to make money off it. Yeah, yeah. That's the goo-goo perspective. That's why most of us went into the field. Well, it's more likely the perspective of somebody in the newsroom than it is somebody in the front office. Definitely. It's amazing (laughs) how my mind changed when I went from the newsroom to the publisher's (laughs) office. All all of a sudden, money was a lot more on my mind. You know, journalism is a public good, but your goal as a publisher was to turn that good into some profit. Or uh, to keep a job. Or to keep Yes, well, that's hand in hand. <laughs> but, but there are some public radio stations, it's true, that just play classical music, right? There so used what's to their be, mission statement? What, what's their mission statement? To bring an eclectic artistic offering to our audience. Well, there would not be a... That's not us, by the way. There's not a commercial market for classical music. And so that is why in some public radio stations have alternative rock, for example, which, again, there's not a large enough audience to sustain that for, for a commercial broadcast. So that's why around the country, a lot of public broadcasting is that. If you're just joining us and you would like to offer your thoughts, media at wamc.org. There's been some controversy about how the media outlets are covering the president. Dana Milbank, a columnist for the Washington Post, actually commissioned a study to look at how coverage of Trump was different from coverage of Biden. And he says that based upon the study of the sentiment analysis of language that appeared in more than 200,000 articles across 65 news websites between January and November, that the coverage of Joe Biden has actually been more negative to that of then-President Trump at this point in his administration. What do you think, Alan? What do you make of that? Well, it may be so. Joe Biden has terribly low numbers. A lot of people are cutting him out as a potential candidate the next time around, either because he's too old or too boring or too this or that. I am not in that group, by the way. I'm a great admirer of Joe Biden and his style, and I think he's doing what he had to do in order to survive, in order to bring the country back to some kind of reality. But I think there were an awful lot of people who were scared to death about Trump. And I remember, and I would get letters about this, I would go on the radio, I'm sure you all heard it, and say, he's a lying, 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 lying liar. 
And in the beginning, people said to me, you can't say that, you know, and people were scared to call him a liar. But now the Washington Post did its study of how many lies he told and all the rest of it, and people got around to it. But I think part of that equation that you just asked about, Rex, is fear. Well, there's also this talk going around, and it's ancillary to the story that Rex points out, that the press ought to be shedding its traditional role and become more of an advocate for Biden. Why? Because the alternative is the loss of democracy. That's right. And that's a tricky one, because as Russ Duhat, the conservative columnist in the New York Times, wrote, does that mean if you say only want to talk about positive things about Biden for fear that there'd be another Trump, that we ignore stories, let's say that Biden had a sexual harassment issue or something of that sort, would we not cover it? Because it would make an unflattering portrait of the candidate that you'd like to see win to save democracy. Well, I don't know. We just saw... a hell of a onslaught against the Cuomo brothers, Democratic yeah, but, liberals. Yeah, but they're, they're not the president, and Trump is not threatening. Well, one's a president, one's a governor, but um, yeah. I mean, I think the press certainly unloaded on the brothers. The press covered what was going on. I think the that the uh, what was unloaded upon them was a series of bad behaviors by Governor Cuomo and his brother on CNN, and the press covered it. You wouldn't have them cover it less, would you? No, and I, I don't know where you would get the idea that I would, but I will say that those guys guys have to look down to look up as a result of the press coverage that they got. You know, the premise of the Milbank column is surprising to me because I would have thought just the opposite. That being said, I think the press did bend over backwards in those first few months to try to say, hey, you all think we don't like this president, but we're going to do, we're going to be as objective we're as we Trump can. Now. Right, right. I'm yeah. talking about Trump. And maybe the coverage was a little too favorable given what we know in retrospect about what was going on. Yeah, times change. It is a different time than it was four years ago because the effect of the Trump presidency has been to actually more divide the country, and that includes the media. You know, we are in a different place. We have seen the limits of the fair and balanced journalism that was the history of American journalism. And that's why I think people are even raising this question. Are we still in a place where we can have that kind of journalism? In this I don't know, Rex. You're the guy who said earlier today that Hearst was sort of a right-wing hero at the time. So I don't yeah. know whether this has been this as big a change as you think. Uh, it's all currents. It was that way then, and it's moving that way now. We had a brief and shining moment in the 70s and 80s, perhaps, <laughs> when uh, we had a vigorous, healthy, and unbiased press. And no Fox News to counteract. That, too. Yeah, we're out of time, unfortunately. We got to go. We are the Media Project. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. We are grateful to the producer of the Media Project, David Gustina, and we are all grateful to you for joining us on the Media Project. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC. Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of The Daily Freeman. You can find out more or schedule a podcast at wamc.org or just download the free WAMC app from the Play Store for your iPhone or Android and listen to the Media Project anytime, anywhere. Thanks for listening. 
To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> 